Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, author John Boyne reads from his novels The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas and Noah Barleywater Runs Away and takes questions from the audience. Recorded at the Central Library on the 10th of November 2010 as part of the series In Other Words, Irish Literature in Translation in Your Library. Good morning, everybody, and uh, very nice to be here today. Um, so, well, yeah, what I thought I would do is read to you two things. One from my first children's book, which is The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and then read you something from the new one, Noah Barley Water Runs Away, and to get a sense of um, the differences, really, I suppose, between the two books. And um, Boy in the Striped Pajamas wasn't actually my first novel. It was my fifth. And before I wrote this book, I had only written for adults before that. And I had only written books which were set in the past. And I had never really thought about writing for young readers before. It wasn't really part of my, part of my plan. Uh, but then sometimes one thing that happens to you as a writer is an idea comes to you. And it seems so powerful, so interesting, that you can't, uh, you can't walk away from it. And that's the way it was with Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And when the idea for that book first came to me, a very simple image at the start of just the two boys sitting at a fence talking to each other. Uh, I felt I couldn't walk away from that story, and I felt that because I was going to be writing it from the point of view of a nine-year-old boy, then um, it would seem natural that it was going to be written as a book for, for children, for young readers. And after it was published, of course, there are people, there were people, who felt that a subject matter like this, such a serious story, such a sad story, tragic story, is not an appropriate one to, to give to uh, young people to read, which of course I didn't agree with. I mean, I do feel that um, young readers can approach serious subjects like this uh, if the stories are told in the right way, and I try to tell it in the right way. So what I'm going to do is read you, uh, at the end of this as well, of course, by the way, I'll take um, any of your questions. What I'm going to do is read you a section from the book, which is from the centre of the book. I like reading from this section because it's, as it, it does go back to the very start for me for how this book started. As I said, the first idea was these two boys meeting at the fence, even though that idea actually only happens halfway through the book. So at this point in the story, Bruno, the uh, son of uh, a German commandant at the concentration camp, has been in this house far away from his, his, his old home, far away from his friends for a long time, and he's very bored, he's very lonely, he's got nobody to talk to, he's got nobody to play with, and he wants to be an explorer when he grows up. So one day, he decides that he's going to break the rules. He's not allowed to go exploring the camp. He's not allowed to go walking along this fence that runs alongside the house. But he's so bored, he's so lonely, he's going to do it anyway. And this is what he finds when he, when he does it. The walk along the fence took Bruno a lot longer than he expected. It seemed to stretch on and on for several miles. He walked and walked, and when he looked back, the house that he was living in became smaller and smaller, until it vanished from sight altogether. During all this time, he never saw anyone anywhere close to the fence, nor did he find any doors to let him inside, and he started to despair that his exploration was going to be entirely unsuccessful. In fact, although the fence continued as far as the eye could see, the huts and buildings and smokestacks were disappearing in the distance behind him, and the fence seemed to be separating him from nothing but open space. After walking for the best part of an hour and starting to feel a little hungry, he thought maybe that was enough exploration for one day and it would be a good idea to turn back. 
However, just at that moment, a small dot appeared in the distance, and he narrowed his eyes to try to see what it was. And while he was looking, his feet were taking him step by step closer and closer to the dot in the distance, which in the meantime had become a speck, and then began to show every sign of turning into a blob. And shortly after that, the blob became a figure. And then, as Bruno got even closer, he saw that the thing was neither a dot, nor a speck, nor a blob, nor a figure, but a person. In fact, it was a little boy. Hello, said Bruno. Hello, said the little boy. The boy was smaller than Bruno, and sitting on the ground with a forlorn expression. He wore the same striped pyjamas that all the other people on that side of the fence wore, and a striped cloth cap on his head. He wasn't wearing any shoes or socks, and his feet were rather dirty. On his arm, he wore an armband with a star on it. When Bruno first approached the boy, he was sitting cross-legged on the ground, staring at the dust beneath him. However, after a moment, he looked up, and Bruno saw his face. It was quite a strange face, too. His skin was almost the colour of grey, but not quite like any grey Bruno had ever seen before. He had very large eyes, and they were the colour of caramel sweets. The whites were very white, and when the boy looked at him, all Bruno could see was an enormous pair of sad eyes staring back. Bruno was sure he had never seen a skinnier or sadder boy in his life, but decided he had better talk to him. I've been exploring, he said. Have you, said the little boy. Yes, for almost two hours now. Have you found anything, asked the boy. Very little. Nothing at all. Well, I found you, said Bruno, after a moment. He stared at the boy and considered asking him why he looked so sad, but hesitated because he thought it might sound rude. He had discovered something during his exploration, and now that he was finally talking to one of the people on the other side of the fence, it seemed like a good idea to make the most of the opportunity. He sat down on the ground on his side of the fence and crossed his legs like the little boy and wished he had brought some chocolate with him or maybe a pastry they could share. I live in the house on this side of the fence, said Bruno. Do you? I saw the house once from a distance, but I didn't see you. My room is on the first floor, said Bruno. I can see right over the fence from there. I'm Bruno, by the way. I'm Schmuel, said the little boy. Bruno scrunched up his face, not sure he'd heard the boy right. What did you say your name was? he asked. Schmuel, said the little boy, as if it was the most natural thing in the world. What did you say your name was? Bruno, said Bruno. I've never heard of that name, said Schmuel. And I've never heard of your name, said Bruno. Schmuel, I like the way it sounds when I say it. It sounds like the wind blowing. Bruno, said Schmuel, nodding his head happily. Yes, I think I like your name too. It sounds like someone who's rubbing their arms to keep warm. I've never met anyone called Schmuel before, said Bruno. There were dozens of Schmuels on this side of the fence, said the little boy. Hundreds, probably. I wish I had a name all my own. I've never met anyone called Bruno, said Bruno, other than me, of course. I think I might be the only one. Then you're lucky, said Schmuel. Mm, I suppose I am. How old are you, he asked. Schmuel thought about it and looked down at his fingers, and they wiggled in the air as he tried to calculate. I'm nine, he said. My birthday is April 15th, 1934. 
Bruno's eyes opened wide and his mouth made the shape of an O. I don't believe it, he said. Why not, Ashpool? No, said Bruno, shaking his head quickly. I don't mean I don't believe you. I mean I'm surprised, that's all. Because my birthday is April 15th too, and I was born in 1934. We were born on the same day. Shmuel thought about this. So you're nine too, he asked. Yes, isn't that strange? Very strange, said Shmuel, because there may be dozens of Shmuels on this side of the fence, but I don't think I've ever met anyone with the same birthday as me before. We're like twins, said Bruno. Mm, a little bit, agreed Shmuel. Do you have many friends? asked Bruno, cocking his head a little to the side as he waited for an answer. Oh, yes, said Shmuel. Well, sort of. Bruno frowned. He had hoped that Shmuel would say no, as it would give them something else in common. Close friends, he asked. Well, not very close, said Shmuel, but there are a lot of us, boys our age, I mean, on this side of the fence. We fight a lot of the time, though. That's why I come out here, to be on my own. It's so unfair, said Bruno. I don't see why I have to be stuck over here on this side of the fence where there's no one to talk to and no one to play with and you get to have dozens of friends and are probably playing for hours every day. Where did you come from, asked Shmuel. Berlin. I've never been to Berlin, said Shmuel. But it's certainly not as nice here as it is there, said Bruno, although it was much nicer before things changed. How do you mean, asked Shmuel. Well, it used to be very quiet there, explained Bruno, who didn't like to talk about how things had changed. And I was able to read in bed at night. But now it's quite noisy sometimes and scary. We have to turn all the lights off when it gets dark. Do you like exploring, he added after a moment. I've never really done any, admitted Schmoll. I'm going to be an explorer when I grow up, said Bruno. At the moment, I can't do very much more than read about explorers. But at least that means that when I'm one myself... I won't make the same mistakes they made. Shmuel frowned. What kind of mistakes? He asked. Oh, countless ones, explained Bruno. The thing about exploring is you have to know whether the thing you found is worth finding. Some things are just sitting there minding their own business, waiting to be discovered, like America, and other things are probably best left alone, like a dead mouse at the back of a cupboard. I think I belong to the first category, said Shmuel. Yes, replied Bruno, I think you do. Can I ask you something? He added after a moment. Yes, said Shmuel. Bruno thought about it. He wanted to phrase this question just right. Why are there so many people on that side of the fence? He asked. And what are you all doing there? So that's a scene from the centre of the story. It's the moment where Bruno and Shmuel first meet. And the rest of the novel really is taken up with the two boys trying to answer that question. Why are there so many people on that side of the fence and what are they doing there? And you know, the thing that Bruno and Shmuel have in common is that they've both been taken away from their homes, from their places of safety. and They both miss where they come from and they both don't know what they're doing in this place. Now, of course, Shmuel is going through a much more difficult experience on his side of the fence than Bruno is. But the one thing that they, that they do have is they have each other, you know, that their friendship... Uh, the way that they can go to the fence every day, talk to each other, and pretend for a little while that they're not in this terrible place is what keeps them both um, you know, cheerful um, at moments where they would otherwise be quite unhappy. And it was quite important to me when I wrote this book that the, 
that the two boys at the centre of this book would be the real heroes of the story. They wouldn't have the same hatreds and prejudices that the, that the adults in the book have. It is a book where the kids are all the good guys and the adults are the bad guys. And um, even though it's a sad story, even though it's a novel with a very sad ending, I did always feel that it was a novel that young people would be able to come to. And hopefully, uh, if you read it, and if you were moved by the story of Bruno and Schmuel and what happens to them, then you would know that there are a wealth of other books out there by people who actually went through these experiences, which you can then go and read. Because my book, of course, is just a made-up story. And a lot of the events in the book and the way the story is described aren't exactly the way they would have been during the Holocaust or at those camps. But it's more of a... I subtitle the book a fable, a work of fiction with a moral at the centre. So it's supposed to be sort of an, uh, an introduction to a study of the subject. And, and hopefully that... Um, these, the story of these two boys would move you enough that you would want to learn more about it. Now, after writing this book, uh, I went back to writing a couple more adult books, uh, and I wondered would I come back to writing for young people again, and I really wanted to. But uh, as you can imagine, this was kind of a it, was a... it was a tough act to follow in terms of writing for young people. And I knew one thing. I knew I didn't want to write uh, a historical novel for children again. I didn't want to write a book which would explore such a serious global tragedy as the Holocaust, because I thought if I did that, it would be, uh, I thought it would be kind of a cynical thing to do, because I'd be trying to replicate the success of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and I had written this book in a very uncynical way, I'd written this book because of the story, so I didn't want to go searching for another worldwide tragedy to write about, but I did know that if I wrote for children again, I wanted to write about something serious at the same time, so when I came to write um, this new book, uh, Noah Barley Water Runs Away. Um, it's very different. It's not a fable, it's a fairy tale. It goes back to the idea of traditional fairy tales. I read a lot of Grimm Brothers stories and Hans Christian Andersen and found, um, found these running themes through them. Of, uh, most of those stories begin with a child being abandoned in the center of a forest. If you think of Hansel and Gretel, Hansel and Gretel are abandoned by their parents in a forest because there's a famine going on in the land and they can't afford to feed them. Um, Snow White is abandoned in the forest. Pinocchio runs away into a forest. There's, a, there's a, this running theme of children being abandoned. And I, 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 the more I read these fairy tales, the more this idea intrigued me. But I knew that I didn't want to write about that. What I thought I would start with was a boy who was running away from home into a forest, but not being abandoned. He's running away from home himself. But we very quickly learned that his family life, he's very, he has a very happy family. He loves his parents. His parents love him, so why is he running away? And this is what the reader has to discover as the story develops. And even though there's a lot more jokes in this book, and even though it's a lot lighter in tone and funnier, there is still quite a serious story going on at the centre of it. And the, the deeper you get into the forest, the deeper you get into the book, the more you realise that there's actually something quite sad and quite, it's quite tragic taking place there. But it's one person's sad story rather than a rather than the world's sad story. So I'm going to read you a section from the, the opening of the book, from chapter one, because this um, doesn't really need any introduction. It tells you exactly who Noah is and, and how his adventure on this one day in his life is going to take place. So this is chapter one, and it's called The First Village. Noah Barleywater left home in the early morning, before the sun rose, before the dogs woke, before the dew stopped falling on the fields. 
He climbed out of bed and shuffled into the clothes he'd laid out the night before, before holding his breath as he crept quietly downstairs. In the hallway, he took his coat off the hook, but didn't put his shoes on until he'd already left the house. He walked down the laneway, opened the gate, went through and closed it again, treading as lightly as he could, in case his parents heard the sound of the gravel crunching beneath his feet and came downstairs to investigate. It was still dark at this hour, and Noah had to squint to make out the road that twisted and turned up ahead. When he got to the end of the first quarter mile, at just that point where he could turn around one last time and still make out his home in the distance, he stared at the smoke rising from the chimney that stretched upwards from the kitchen fireplace and thought of his family inside, all safely tucked up in their beds, unaware that he was leaving them forever. And despite himself, he felt a little sad. Am I doing the right thing, he wondered. A great blanket of happy memories trying to break through and smother the fresher, sadder ones. But he had no choice. He couldn't bear to stay any longer. Anyway, it was probably best that he went out to make his own way in the world. After all, he was already eight years old. And the truth was, he hadn't really done anything with his life so far. Why, only a few days before, he tried to make a list of all his achievements. And this is what he'd come up with. One, I have read 14 books from cover to cover. Two, I won the bronze medal in the 500 metres at Sports Day last year and would have won silver if Breffney O'Neill hadn't jumped the gun and got a head start. Three, I know the capital of Portugal. It's Lisbon. Four, I may be small for my age, but I'm the seventh cleverest boy in my class. Five, I am an excellent speller. Five achievements at eight years of age, he thought. Not very impressive at all. And so here he was, out on his own, a young soldier on his way to battle. It wasn't long before he reached the first village, and by the time he got there, he was starting to feel a little hungry, as he hadn't had anything to eat since the night before. The smell of eggs and bacon spilled out from the open windows of the houses that ran up and down the streets. He licked his lips and looked up at the windowsills. In the books he had read, grown-ups often left pies and cakes there, with steam rising out of their peak pastry hats, just so ravenous boys like him could come along and steal them away. But no one seemed to be that stupid in the first village. Or maybe they just hadn't read the same books as he had. But then, a stroke of good luck, an apple tree appeared before him. It hadn't been there a moment before, at least he hadn't noticed it. But here it was now, standing tall and proud in the early morning breeze, its branches weighed down with shiny green apples. Breakfast, he thought, running forward. But as he did so, one of the branches of the tree, the one that had been leaning most towards him, seemed to rise up a little and press itself closer to the trunk, as if somehow it knew that he'd been planning on stealing away one of its treasures. How extraordinary, said Noah, hesitating for a moment before stepping forward again. This time, the tree made a great grunting sound, and if he hadn't known any better, he would have sworn that it was edging its way to the left, moving away from him, its apples trembling a little in fright. But it can't be, he decided, shaking his head. Trees don't move, and apples certainly don't tremble. And yet, it was moving. It was most certainly moving. Well, that's enough nonsense for this time of the morning, Noah decided, throwing himself against the tree, 
which immediately froze as he wrapped his arms around it and plucked three apples, one, two, three, off the branches before jumping away again, popping one in his left-hand pocket, one in his right, and taking a great bite out of the third triumph. The tree wasn't moving at all now. If anything, it seemed to be drooping a little. Well, I was hungry, he cried aloud, as if he had to explain himself to a tree. What was I to do? The tree didn't respond, and Noah shrugged his shoulders and walked away. But just at that moment, a voice called out from behind him, Hey, you! And he turned to see a man marching in his direction. I saw you, the man cried, stabbing his finger in the air. What do you think you're doing, eh? Noah froze, then turned on his heel and started running. He couldn't be caught this quickly. He couldn't allow himself to be sent back. In fact, it wasn't until he was sure he was no longer being chased that he slowed down. And this was when he realised that the apple in his left-hand pocket had fallen out while he was running. Never mind, he thought. I still have the one on my right. But no, that was gone too, and he hadn't even heard it fall. Annoying, he thought. But at least I have the one in my hand. But no, somewhere along the way, that had vanished too, and he hadn't even noticed. How extraordinary, he thought, continuing on his way, a little more disheartened now, trying not to think about how hungry he still was. One bite of an apple, after all, is hardly a satisfying breakfast for an eight-year-old boy, especially one who's on his way to see the world and have a great adventure. So that's how that story begins, with Noah running into the forest, and very shortly after this, he comes across a toy shop in the centre of the forest, and an old man living in the centre of this, living in this toy shop, carving puppets all day. And over the course of the day, Noah starts to tell the old man stories about the months leading up to his decision to run away, and the old man tells stories about when he was a boy and how he ran away from home. And as we hear these two stories, we start to realise how much these two characters have in common and why Noah shouldn't be running away from home at all, why he really needs to run straight back home before it's too late. So maybe at this point what I'll do is um, open it up to you, and you can ask me questions about writing, or about these books, or the movie, or other books, or anything you want, really. Before you do, let me ask you a question. How many, many people here think they would like to be writers when, they, when they're older? Lots? Good few. Great, okay, well that's good. Okay, so you may want to ask questions about about writing along the way. So, who'd like to start? Yes? I think I was about 10 or 11 years old. And did you start writing books there? I did, because, um, I mean, I loved reading when I was a kid. And I used to, my parents used to bring me to the library all the time. We had a library like this down the road from my house. And I loved books. I loved getting lost in books. And remember, when I was a kid, when I was your age, you know, we didn't have computers or DVDs or, or, or Playstations or anything like that. Um, we had nothing. Um, I, so we just had books. And I loved books. And I knew that the, the stories that I was reading, I wanted to be able to write stories too. I wanted to, if the, the books that made me laugh or made me sad or made me scourge, I wanted to write stories that would do the same thing. So I started writing when I was about 10 or 11. And I would take characters from the books that I liked and I would write new stories for them. And then when I got a bit older, you know, I started stealing other people, stopped stealing other people's characters and started making up my own characters. And um, to be honest, I think from the time I was about 10 or 11 till you know, this morning, I haven't really stopped writing because I love it so much. And I mean, one of the tricks to writing is being very disciplined about it. It's writing every day. It's never walking away from it. 
So I just felt inside me always, from the time I was very, very young, that this is what I wanted to do. And what pro and did I persuade you to write uh, um, books? Um, not, not, not persuade me, but encourage me. You know, because I, even when I was young, I would give stories to my parents, to my brother and sisters to read, and they seemed to enjoy them. You know, I wrote a lot of funny stories, I suppose, as you do when you're, you're young, and they seemed to think they were funny and interesting. So they gave me a lot of encouragement, and in school as well, I was writing a lot. And um, I always seemed to get a good response to what I was writing. You know, people seemed to think they were good, and that was encouraging. Um, you always need a bit of a clap on the back sometimes, you know. Yeah? Uh, well, that was a very strange writing experience because most of the books I've written have taken about a year and a half to write. But Boy in a Striped Pajamas came about in a very different way. Usually, I have an idea for a book and I think about it for a long time before starting to write it. But when I had that idea, I started writing it the next day. And I didn't know if it was going to be a short story, novel, what it was going to be. I just started writing. And the, the story seemed to take me over and I couldn't walk away from it. And I wrote all the way through one day and I felt, at the end of the day, if I walk away from this now, I'm going to lose this story. I have to keep writing. So I wrote through the night, and the next day I wrote all day, I wrote all night, and on the third day at lunchtime, I finished the first draft. And I hadn't slept. I wrote for 60 solid hours, uh, with only taking a break between chapters for a cup of tea or a sandwich or whatever. And the one thing I remember about that experience was when I would stop, when I would you know, be sitting having a cup of tea, thinking to myself, don't think about this too much. Don't analyze it. Just keep writing it, because if you think about it, if you intellectualize it in some way, this story, which seems really interesting, is going to run away from you. So I didn't. Um, so after two and a half days, I had a draft of the book, 50,000 words. Now, it's not the same book that you see here today. It then took maybe about eight months to rewrite it, to get it into the shape it is. Because again, for all the people who want to be writers, one of the tricks of writing is knowing, that, um, knowing how to rewrite, that the first draft is only the first draft. And you have to write it again and again and again until it's right. Yeah, the back there. What, what was your first book you read? First book was uh, a novel called The Thief of Time, which was published just over 10 years ago. And it was a story of a man who lives for 256 years because his body stops aging when he's in his 40s. And he's born in 1743, and he tells his story from on the night where 1999 becomes 2000. And he tells all these stories. He's been through all these different historical periods and um, you know, met, met lots of famous people along the way. And it's a big sort of adventure story. Yes? You wanted to write, or what would you have wanted to be? Uh, I think I probably would have liked to have been an actor. Would you say I was an actor? I don't know, but, but what I would say is that knowing I wanted to be a writer, and again, for all of you who want to be writers, I pursued it absolutely. You know, I was focused on it. I didn't just think in my head, I want to be a writer. I wrote. And that's what matters. You know, there's no point just wanting to be something. You have to actually work to get it. And I think if I had wanted something different, I would have probably worked to the same extent. And hopefully, who knows? But I'm happy with it. Maria. Yeah. Would you ever want to write an autobiography about? An autobiography. Um, I don't know. Jeez, you know, nobody's ever asked me that before. Do you know what's strange is you know I've been I've been talking about books for published books for about ten years and certainly talking about one striped pajamas for about five, and um, very very occasionally somebody asks you something like that that no one has asked you before. 
Uh, I don't, I'm too young, you know, I'm still in my 30s, maybe when I'm in my, my 80s. I don't know how interesting my life is, you know, I mean, I just write, but I don't really that lead that interesting life. People might think it's very interesting to be a writer. It's not all that interesting, you know, I mean, it's enjoyable. You know, I write my books, I go out and I talk about my books, but then I go home and I, you know, walk the dog and think about, you know, you, know, you, you want to know a writer's day this morning, first thing, walk the dog, second thing, uh, put the laundry on. You know, third thing, um, answer some emails. Fourth thing, come here. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's ch chapter four, you know, separating the whites from the colors in the, in the wash, you know. It's um, maybe when I'm 80, I'll, um, yeah. you know, I'll write an autobiography. Can yeah. it be a bit lonely at times? I'm thinking of your hours writing on your own and you have to write every day. Like, it could be a bit lonely, couldn't it? It's actually not lonely. No. I don't think people think working on your own, working from home, yeah, you know, right. can be lonely. But it's not because, um, because I get so enthusiastic about what I'm writing. And if I'm, writing, if I'm working on a new novel, um, I, I get um, so lost in it and, and I enjoy it so much that um, it's, it's, it's company, like, you know, during the work day. And um, I, I couldn't work with other people around me anymore. You know, I need the silence. You know, you know the only person during the daytime who's bothering me is the dog, you know, running around my feet. The way of life now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I actually don't find it lonely. And there is this strange split in a writer's life because you do spend half your time at home writing quietly on your own. And then you spend the other half maybe in different countries talking about the books as they come out and talking to audiences. So it's, it's either very quiet or it's very busy. And you, it, it's always enjoyable when I go out touring and stuff, and then you the end of the tour, it's always enjoyable going home. Uh, yeah, back. What type of dog do you have? <laughs> I have a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. It's a little King Charles. It's only a little fella. It's only a year old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, see, when you wrote the boy in the show pajamas, did you go over to Germany and like, see all the concentration camps and like, like, give you the idea about it? And that's a good question. When I wrote the book, right, firstly, if I go back in time, when I was about 15, um, my English teacher in school one day came in uh, on the last day before our summer holidays, and he gave us a list of about 40 books. And he said, if you get a chance over the summer, read some of these books. You won't be tested on them, but just read some. And the first book I read was a book called The Periodic Table by a man called Primo Levi, who had been in a concentration camp and survived the camp and wrote about his experiences. But he hadn't really survived because the experiences were so difficult for him to cope with that he was never able to really get over them. His life was very tragic. And it sparked an interest in me in the subject. And over the years that followed, I read an awful lot of books about the Holocaust and about the concentration camps uh, because I was always interested to know, like I said there, what are all those people doing there? You know, why, why are they there? Um, so I had studied a lot about the camps. And when I came to write the book, all of that knowledge came into it. But I hadn't yet been to, to visit a camp when I wrote the book. And because, as I said, I wrote the first draft in such a short space of time, I wrote, the book was written before I could do that. So subsequently, afterwards, I then went and visited Auschwitz and, um, and saw that for myself, uh, which was a very you know, interesting experience. It's, it's a sad experience. Um, I'm sure a lot of you, when you're older, will be traveling around Europe. It's a very worthwhile place to visit because it's, it's now set up as a museum, and you can, you can learn a lot more about it, and there's lots of photographs, lots of information. Um, so I hadn't gone before I, before I wrote it, but I went afterwards. Um, yeah. 
have you ever got like an idea in your head and like when you go to write the book you forget? <laughs> Uh, no, because again, here's for again for all of you who put your hands up and said, do you want, do you want to put your hands down between questions, please? Uh, for all of those of you who said you'd like to be writers, another thing you have to do is always carry a notebook with you, and you never know when you're going to get some great idea, and just write it down or put it into your phone or something, you know, and, and keep them somewhere. And 99 out of 100 of those ideas might go nowhere; they might not be any good, but one out of 100 is going to be really good, and it could be a great story. So. Once you think of something, scribble it down somewhere, find some place, and keep all those ideas together. Because at some point, maybe you'll be, you'll be thinking, what will I write about this? I can't think of anything. And you'll read through these, and something will jump out at you and say, write me. Yeah, the corner. Were you there when you were like, making the film? I was indeed. Um, we shot the film in um, Budapest. Anybody know where Budapest is? Oh, wow, brilliant. Yes. Hungry? Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, hungry. Um, yeah, and uh, so we shot the thing. It took about nine weeks to shoot, and I was there on set during it and watching it all take place before me, which was very interesting. Yeah. You have to write the script, you know? I didn't write the script. Uh, the director, Mark Herman, wrote the script, but what he did was every draft of the script he would email to me, and I would read it and give back my notes, you know, say, you know, this is working well, this one I'm not so sure about. And we, worked, we, we became very good friends. and. Um, so we worked quite closely on it and um, talked about it a lot, about my ideas of the characters and his. At some point, you have to kind of let it go as the writer because the filmmaker is the guy who's making the film and you have to let him do that without too much interference. But if you have a good relationship with the, with the person who's making it, um, if you get on well, then at least you can have a say in what's going on. Was I there when I, they hired the actors? Uh, no, I wasn't there. We talked a lot about the adult actors, and we went through lots of different names of people that um, uh, we wanted to ask to do it. And some people, some people that like I would suggest to the director, say no, I can't stand him. Or some people that the director would say, and I said, no, I can't stand her. She's hopeless. And um, I was so you know I had a say on the actors. Not really, not really a say, but I had an involvement in the in the adults. Um, not for the kids though. The kids were. Um, the kids, there was like a special casting agent um, who, who went through all these um, different videos of kids that were auditioning and with the director. And actually, Asa, who played Bruno in the movie, um, believe it or not, was the second person um, who she saw out of, I don't know, hundreds. Um, and he got the part. So. Uh, Bob, um, oh, okay. Were you happy that you were Why is the two boys A in the film and one in the book? Another good question. Um, I think the, the director felt that, I mean, it's a small gap between eight and nine, but he felt that um, a little bit younger would explain the naivety of the characters a little bit better. You know, I mean, I wouldn't change it in the book. I still think nine is fine, but he just felt um, a little bit younger is better to tell the story. So, yeah, bye. Yeah, when we do like a starting stuff, if we do a brainstorm, would you do a brainstorm or would you just like think of something and then write it down? I would just think of things myself and I don't tend to, it's a very good way of, of starting out and getting into writing. Um, it's very helpful, but when you get older and when you get um, more experienced at it, I guess, I prefer to just keep it all in my head. I don't even tell people what I'm working on. I'd say, I'm, I'm working on a new book, but I prefer to just keep it all inside until I can give it to somebody to read. Uh, yeah. Do you make a time before your story idea do the story first? 
That's a good question. Um, it differs. You know, it depends. Some books, uh, you get it, you have a title very early on. I, my most recent novel for adults was a book called The House of Special Purpose, and it was set around the Russian Revolution. And when I was researching the book, I found that the, um, the characters, I knew that the characters in it, because they're real-life figures, were, were the, the, the last Russian royal family were assassinated. And the house that they were assassinated in was called by the Bolsheviks the House of Special Purpose. And when I read this, um, um, do you want to put your hands down between? When I read this phrase, immediately I knew that was what the novel was going to be called. Um, Boy in a striped pajamas, about five chapters in or something, Bruno looks out the window. He sees these people in the distance walking around, and he asks his sister Gretel, why are they wearing striped pajamas? And I knew Bruno was going to end up putting on a pair of these striped pajamas. And I just, I can remember scribbling on a piece of paper, the boy in the striped pajamas seemed like a good title. Um, and others, you get to the end of the book and you still don't have a title and you're struggling and you show it to your publisher and you're, you're kind of brainstorming like, like, like you asked about, you know, what can we call it? I can't think of something. So it changes from one to one. Is there any of your other books that were made into films? Uh, not yet, but uh, a short film has just been made um, in Australia uh, from a short story that I wrote. Uh, and it's a 15-minute long film, uh, which is going to be in film festivals. And it's about a man, it's set during, also set during the Second World War, but in, in, on a farm in New South Wales. And it's about a man who is the man in town who delivers telegrams to people to tell them that their sons have been killed in the war. And it's how the reaction of people in the town every time they see him coming on his bike about how frightened of him they are. Yeah? Is it easier to make uh, children's books or adults' books? It's not easier to make either. It's, um, writing is hard work. Um, it, it can be easier when you're really loving it and involved in it. Um, it's about the story itself. Uh, you don't write a children's book thinking this is going to be much easier. And I'll tell you something, you know, like, Pop stars and movie stars tend to write children's books because they think um, that it's easier to write children's books, and it's not. And it's very, um, very insulting to both young readers and to writers who write for young readers. Um, it's not easier at all. It's, um, it's just as difficult. Do you know what you think when you're writing a story? I do. Do you write it on the page and it takes ages like you write it on the computer? What I do is, first draft, I write it on a computer because uh, I, you know, I, I can type as quickly as I think. So I, I write the story without, without really editing myself in my head. You know, I just let it all flow out. I don't worry about, um, does this make a lot of sense? Is this, you know, because it's just a first draft. I type it all in. And then what I do is I print it out with big gaps like this between all the lines. Print it all out, get my pen, and I cross loads of things out. I rewrite lots of things. So full of marks, and then I feed all that stuff back into the computer. Then I print it all out again, the same way with big gaps. Keep doing that over and over and over again. It could be 15, 16 times you'd end up doing it. Uh, keep doing it until one time you print it out and you have nothing left to make any changes on. And that's when I give it to someone to read. And we'll take um, two or three more. Yeah, man at the back there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I enjoyed your readings very much, and I also enjoyed the questions from the floor. I just have a sort of specific question. You yes. said there at the start about you had the image of the two boys on the fence. Was the setting actually in a concentration camp? Yeah, when I had that image, I, I knew where the fence was. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I could see them in a, I could see Shmuel in his striped pajamas as such, and, and Bruno in, in like, like a pair of shorts and 
Sure, you know, so I knew that immediately. And then when you, when you, you said you actually went right into the book and you wrote for three days or whatever. Yeah. Did you want a reflection at another time to say, you know, where did all that come from? Yeah, I, I've asked myself that many times actually. And um, I think it, it's partly from all that reading I had done uh, over the years and my, my, my fascination, my interest in the subject. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm, one thing I sort of believe about the book, and this is not something I normally believe about anything, but I believe it about this, is that sometimes I think you're supposed to write something. You're supposed to write a story, you know, and it, my mind, my, my whole person was just in the right place at the right time that when I had this idea, it was just supposed to happen for me to do that and um, to write a story that uh, could reach so many people, you know. Uh, like I didn't when I when I finished it on that Friday that first draft, you know, I did look at it and think, you know, what is this and how did I write this and this is very different to what I've done before. Um, so I don't really have any answers on it other than just I feel it was I just don't feel it was in my my life that I was going to do this, you know. Um, maybe somebody who hasn't asked a question. Yeah. I first heard your interview and talk about your book on the Tempty Show. And then I went and got the book, and I saw the film, and it came out. Could you tell me what page you read that excerpt from, please? Yeah, it's, um, it's right in the centre. It's chapter 10, from the beginning of chapter 10, which in, in my book, which is the hard book, is page 104, but easier to stop it. Really enjoyed your uh, talk. Thank you. Thank you. Have you ever wrote anything like in the story that happened to you? Yeah, I, when I was much younger, I did. I mean, when you're starting writing first, it's not unusual that you write a lot about your own life and things that have happened to you, and you turn those into stories. And I got to a point, though, in my sort of mid to late 20s where I felt that wasn't really wasn't working for me. You know, that works very well for some writers. It wasn't working for me. And I wanted to just... I wanted to make it all up. You know, I wanted to use my imagination much more. And so I focused on that, really. And in the books I've written, I haven't really written anything too personal. Uh, one thing I have done is instructed. I mentioned in that section I read, the two boys say they were born on the 15th of April, 1934. And I chose that date and that month and that year because that's the day, month, and year on which my own father was born. And my father, happily, is alive, but I use that date because I wanted to look, be able to look at my dad and think, all right, this is the life that these boys and boys like them could have led their children, their grandchildren, the jobs, the whole... The whole thing that makes up your experience of life. This is, what, this is where they would have been then had their story ended differently. So I tried to personalize it, tried to personalize a story which you know, I don't have a personal relationship to in a way. I tried to do it like that. So I don't bring an awful lot of personal stuff in, but maybe subconsciously things go in, but I try to just really kind of make it all up. And on that note, I think um, maybe we'll have to. Sorry, I don't have to call it a hole there, I think. But thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.